If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll be picking up where we left off in our study of the Gospel of John after a great missions week. We're going to look at uh, verses 4, or 43 through 54 out of John 4. Let me read that for us. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we want to glorify your name. Even as we hear your word, pray that we would hear your voice, that we would recognize your voice, and that we would respond in a manner worthy of our calling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my wife and I were first married, my parents bought me a suit. Uh, I didn't own a suit at the time. This was a special gift. I couldn't afford a suit at that time. And so it was the only one I had. And when it came time to bring it to the cleaners, uh, which was a, a new experience for me, not having a suit up to that point, brought it to the cleaners and dropped it off. And the lady said, of course, it'll be ready in a couple days or so. And I took my ticket and went on my way. Well, a couple of days passed. And I didn't hear back from them. And so I thought, well, I need to, this is my only suit. I need to find out what's going on here. So I went to the place, gave the ticket to the lady, and she went into the back room. Spent a long time back there, actually. And then she finally came out without my suit. And uh, she says to me those reassuring words that you hear from a, a store uh, owner there, we don't have it. I'm not sure where it is. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what do you mean you don't have it? This is your whole line of work is to have it and to clean it and to return it. 
And so I end up filling out this claim form, and you have to estimate how much the suit is and that kind of thing. And so I put that down, and she, I hand her the, the claim form. She looks at it, and she says, hmm, I don't know if we can do that. And I'm thinking, you don't know if you can do that? <laughs> I mean, this is the whole point of making a claim uh, for something that you uh, made a mistake on. And so I, I, I got frustrated. And I left frustrated with not many answers to the problem. Well, I go home and I tell my wife about it. And she says, I'll handle it. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes in the next day. And if you know my wife, uh, she has this sweet, honest way about her. Very persuasive. And she handles these customer service issues very well. And, in fact, one of her friends actually jokes with her and says she has this Jedi mind trick that she plays on people where, where they, they not only want to help fix the problem, they want to give her stuff on the house, you know, as a, as a bonus. And uh, whatever it is, I know I don't have it, and it doesn't work out that way for me. So what had happened was they had given it to the wrong customer, okay? So we just had to wait until they returned it and figured out the problem there. But, you know, it's a simple illustration, and you could probably think of other frustrating circumstances like that. But it reminds us how unreliable someone's word can be. Not only with a simple human error or a misplacement like with the suit, but especially when there's intentional deception involved. And as we, you live in this world long enough, you realize that often... You cannot take men at their word. What about God? Can you take him at his word? And of course, we all know the right answer to that question. That's the easy part. Sure, we can take him at his word. But do you take him at his word in how you live? This is harder not can he, but do we? Do we take him at his word? I think it's safe to say we all struggle from one degree or another with taking God at his word, what we read in scripture. And if you're like me, a regular prayer is simply this, I believe, help my unbelief. And my prayer is that God will do just that with our passage this morning, to help our unbelief. And I want us to look at the kind of faith that honors Jesus, that glorifies him. What is the nature of that faith from this passage? And we're going to look at two angles on the nature of true faith. First, from a negative side, what it is not. And then positively, what it is. So let's look it's your outline there in point one. True faith does not look for signs. This episode that we read about here in this passage begins on a somewhat of a confusing note. You know, after two days in Samaria, which we was preached on a few weeks ago, he was welcomed and he was believed upon as the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then he departs for Galilee, about a two- to three-day journey. 
And the question, why head to Galilee? Well, we get this statement, sort of a proverb, uh, in verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, Galilee was a larger area which would have been associated with where he was brought up. It would be considered uh, his hometown or home area of sorts. But this statement, this proverb implies that there's an anticipation of rejection that he's going to find there, that he's not going to be received or welcomed. This is not going to be a good response. And here we have, as often as the case with Jesus, a situation that he blows apart our expectations. You see, part of Jesus' mission was to go to those who opposed him, not just to go where he was received and welcomed. In fact, his mission would take him to the point of the cross where he was despised and rejected to the uttermost. This is unlike the world in many respects. He goes to those who are his enemies, those who even oppose him, following his father's mission. So coming off the heels of this positive reception that he receives among the Gentiles in Samaria, he now turns to Jewish soil, where he is largely not received. This reminds us of what we read about in the prologue in chapter 1, which in many ways introduces all of the themes that you'll find throughout the book of John. In verse 11 of chapter 1, it said that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So what happened when he got there? Verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So here's an unexpected turn. They welcomed him. However, it's clear in the Gospel of John that there are two kinds of welcoming when it comes to Jesus. There's a superficial one, and there's authentic welcome. Already in John, we've seen this to be the case, especially with regard to a superficial welcome. Back in chapter 2, during the Passover, the Passover that's referenced here in our text, the Jews were asking for a sign after he cleansed the temple. And many people, it said, believed in his name at the Passover, but when they saw the signs that he was doing. But then in the text, it says Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew what was in them. And these Galileans that we read about in our text in chapter 4 were part of that crowd. They had seen the signs and were among those who largely believed superficially in Christ. Welcoming Jesus not as Messiah, but merely as a performer of signs. I think this will become a little bit more apparent as we go along in our passage. But later in chapter 6... Those who had even welcomed him and were following him came to a point where they finally put their foot down and say, we can't follow this anymore. Showing themselves to have welcomed him superficially. 
And after one of his teachings saying, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? Have you welcomed Jesus at some point in your life? But over time, that interest has grown cold. And when you hear things like, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you think to yourself, that doesn't work. That doesn't work in this world. This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to this anymore? Have you found yourself saying that, thinking that? Let's move on. He encounters the official and his son and his son's situation in verses 46 through 48. In the midst of this largely unbelieving environment comes this desperate plea of a father, a plea for help. This official who is probably uh, who, are, who probably worked for Herod and Tippus in Galilee at the time, had a son at death's door, lying sick with a fever, it says. He hears that Jesus is in town and comes and begs him to come down to his house to heal his son. And you can imagine, if, you, if you're a father or a parent, you can imagine what was going through this man's mind, the sense of urgency perhaps even despair, thinking, if Jesus came and just touched my boy, he would be well. Maybe if Jesus came to the house and saw him and spoke a word to him, he would live. And then we come to verse 48, where once again, Jesus gives us an unexpected word. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's speaking to the official. That's the him. But the you associated with seeing and believing is plural. So you see what he's saying here, in other words, is that Jesus is including this official that he's talking to with the whole host of Galileans. Reinforcing what I said earlier about the welcome, the nature of the welcome that perhaps they had given him, that it was superficial and rooted in unbelief. The Galileans were interested in signs for their own sake, not so much as revealing the glory of Jesus as the Christ, and as the Son of God. Why would Jesus respond this way to this man in this situation? It doesn't sound very sensitive or even comforting, does it? It sounds more like a rebuke. Most commentators at this point see a challenge that Jesus is extending to this man, a challenge to faith. In a sense, he's associating him with the rest of the Galileans, offering sort of this implicit challenge. Are you going to be like the rest of them, looking for signs? Are you going to believe? 
Much like, if you remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, who had the demon-possessed daughter, who begged Jesus to to heal her daughter and to cast out the, the demon. And this is what he said to her at that moment of despair. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's an unexpected word in that situation. But it was a challenge. How would she respond? If you read the rest of the story, she responded in faith. Yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And Jesus heals her daughter. So how will the official, in this case, respond to Jesus' challenge? Well, he's in a desperate situation. And it seems as though all he's interested in is that his son be made well. Not so much interested in signs and wonders for their own sake or anything else for that matter. He's desperate for help. Sir, come down before my child dies. How will his response be different from the Galilean population at large in their response to Jesus? And that brings us to point two in your outline. True faith. This is the positive side. True faith takes Jesus at his word. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus doesn't come with him. He doesn't touch his son. He doesn't perform some sort of ritual or draw a crowd to see what will happen. Simply says the word. And the man took him at that word and went back to see his boy. And, and we go on to read how in the text it's being emphasized the immediacy of the miracle. It was right when he said the word that the boy was healed. So we see a difference here from the larger Galilean uh, reception of Jesus in contrast to how this man received and welcomed Jesus. He got it right. He took Jesus at his word. And really, this is the essence of true faith. I want to consider taking, uh, just consider a few texts that sort of complement this idea of taking God at his word. This is really essential, the essential nature of true faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a great, simple definition, but we need to remember the context from which it comes. The things hoped for there are the promises of God that he had revealed through his word to his people. It's not just... Well, whatever you come up with to hope for or look forward to, it's God's word, his promises. And then consider Abraham's example highlighted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. Describing the nature of Abraham's faith, it says, In hope he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, promised. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body or the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is true faith. Taking God at his word, fully convinced that he is able to do what he had promised. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor and theologian in England, commented on this text that we're looking at this morning. And he commented concerning the certainty of God's word in the following manner. He says, What Christ has said, he is able to do. And what he has undertaken, he will never fail to make good. The sinner who has trusted in Christ is safe to all eternity. He could not be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written in it. That's how certain the word of God is. Let's consider some application in light of this. First of all, very simply and very directly, you cannot take God at his word if you don't, do not know what his word is. What will you hope for? What will you hope in if not his word? You'll replace it with something else which will be ultimately to your own harm. And I take this moment just to remind you we have a reading challenge that we're doing here at the church, and we'll have another one coming up this summer. And I want to encourage you to stick with that or find some plan that you can follow to be acquainting yourself with the Word of God so that you know what to trust in, what to hope in, and what is certain. And if you've missed the starting point of this past challenge, it doesn't matter. Start square one and start reading the Word of God. That's all that matters. Be in God's Word to know what the Word is that you are to take and trust in. It reminds me of a, you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke chapter 16, where the rich man dies and he's in hell and he's perishing and being tormented. And he asks for his brothers to be warned. And the word that's given to him in that parable. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, in other words, if you don't believe the word of God, you won't be convinced if you saw as many signs as you can think of. Even someone raising from the dead. Taking God at his word is very different from looking for signs. Signs to confirm that his word is true and trustworthy to begin with. 
That's like saying we shouldn't believe a word of God or a word that comes from God until it receives confirmation from an outside source or some other higher authority who really knows the nature of things. Let me warn you that this is the way of the devil. This is the way of those who opposed Christ in his earthly ministry, saying things like this, if you are the son of God, do this. Even when he's hanging on the cross and someone says, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Even proposing that he would deny himself in his very mission in order to prove that he is the son of God. Such statements are rooted in unbelief and deny the very character of God and his truth. Are you still looking for confirmation somewhere that his word is true before you'll believe it and obey it? Are you still looking for confirmation? Has he not said that his word is truth? Has he not said that he cannot lie and that he will be faithful to his promises? Does his word need a higher authority or some other sign to confirm that it's true? There is no higher authority. Whatever difficulty you're going through at this time, in this moment, whether it's a family issue, a marriage problem, a relational issue, health problems and challenges, anxiety or depression, maybe financial pressure, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to help you. Nothing is too difficult for him. Notice I didn't say how he will help you. He knows how. In his infinite wisdom, he knows how to help you. Even if it looks very different from how you imagine it to be. With what in your life right now do you need to take Jesus at his word? I want us to consider also a couple of encouraging things from this event that we have recorded here. Consider first the grace and the power of Jesus Christ displayed in this incident. In the face of so many seeking a sign out of unbelief, what does he do? He performs a sign. How gracious is that? If, if I would guess if it were you or me in that place, we would say, well, I'm not going to do anything for you then. Because you don't even believe. You're just wanting signs. Jesus Christ is gracious to sinners. But in doing so, he doesn't condone their unbelief in performing this sign. But he graciously condescends to their weakness and their situation. 
What grace. And also consider the power of Christ displayed. His mere word heals. Just as God's mere word creates the universe out of nothing. And it's sustained by the word of Christ. Note the immediacy again of the healing, just right at that moment. You see, he was not dependent upon some sort of chain of cause and effect in order to accomplish this miracle. He wasn't dependent upon other people and other resources in order to make this thing happen. It's very obvious in the text that it was an immediate, miraculous healing. That doesn't mean in every case that that is so. He may oftentimes choose to use secondary things to accomplish his purpose, but he's never dependent upon them. Never dependent. How might that change how you trust in God with your circumstances? Sometimes, if you're like me, we're tempted to trust him only so far as things seem humanly possible. All things are possible with God. Lastly, his, his power is not restricted by space or distance. As we read, he heals from a distance with his very word. It reminds me of those encouraging passages from the Psalms that say things like, even if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. We cannot flee from his presence, the presence of our helper in times of trouble. Do you see him that way? Do you see Jesus that way? With that grace and with that power, do you trust him that way? What is it in your life today with which you're tempted to say, why trouble Jesus any longer? The, car, you know, the, the, the hand that I've been dealt here is impossible. There's no way out. Why trouble him? I'll just have to go at this alone. Jesus' word to you today is do not fear, only believe. As John closes out this episode in chapter 4, he speaks of the second sign. Now, signs rightly understood point away from themselves to the thing which they signify. Well, what is that? John tells us explicitly that the signs and miracles recorded in his gospel are for the purpose of believing upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God and to have life in his name. So that's the purpose of him recording these signs. But if you take a step back and look at the book as a whole, you'll see that all of these signs 
point to a great reality where his glory is preeminently displayed and revealed. It's in his death and his resurrection. That's the glory that's ultimately revealed. And this healing of the official son, sparing him from death, points to the one through whom, through his death and resurrection, he has victory over death. This is a small foretaste of the ultimate victory that Christ would achieve over death through his own death and resurrection. And celebrating that, his death and resurrection for sinners like us, is what we do when we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words, your words given to us in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to examine ourselves, to see if we are of the faith. And for many of us, we believe but help our unbelief. We pray that you would help us to take you at your word. You are worthy of that. You are truth itself. And you are trustworthy. Help us to live by faith in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.